Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. of Mexico, part 13. We finally made it to the last episode of our series on the conquest of Mexico. Today we aren't telling any story. Instead, this episode is designed to pull things together. We'll try and look back at some of the ramifications of the conquest and look at how this new territory was taking shape. We also want to have a look at a couple of characters that didn't make it into the main story but who are interesting, and who tell us a bit more about the conquest. As you'll know, I took the step of extending this telling of the conquest beyond the fall of Tenochtitlan, to include the conquests of much of Central America. As we have seen, though, it could be argued that these conquests were never fully completed, and in fact, many of them will still be being completed a century later we will have to return to Guatemala, Honduras, southern Mexico, the whole northern third of Mexico, and the Yucatan, to look at how the process of conquest and colonisation was continuing, and in some cases, starting. Obviously that makes it hard to know where to draw the line. This series could have gone on forever. However, seeing as I wanted to try and keep this podcast more or less chronological, even if that means jumping back and forth between different places, this was a good spot to cut things off for now. The Spaniards have established a presence in every country that makes up today's Mexico and Central America, even if that presence was tenuous in many places. Now I'm conscious that while we've looked at Central America, not just Mexico, I haven't said a word so far about Costa Rica. For now, it will have to be enough to know that the Spanish were travelling through it on their way back and forth between Panama and Nicaragua. Cordoba did found a settlement, called Villa de Bruselas, on the northwest coast, but apart from that, nothing much happened there. In fact, in contrast to today, when Costa Rica is one of the richer, more developed and more stable of the Latin American countries, for much of the colonial period, it was poor and a sparsely populated backwater. We will return to talk about it at some point, but at the moment nothing much was going on. So I've mentioned throughout this series that the conquest was patchy and uneven, so let's look at that in a bit more detail. When drawing up maps, we tend to draw fixed boundaries between the states. This is, after all, how the world is divided today. It isn't really an accurate representation of the reality as it was on the ground, though. Having gone overland to Guatemala and Honduras, we might be tempted to show all the land in between as being part of Cortes' territory. 
but this was not the case. He had a presence there, but the land wasn't properly controlled. Even in Guatemala, we've seen that De Alvarado didn't really have much power beyond the settlements he'd founded. Eventually, that map showing blocks of Spanish territory will become more accurate. But in this early period, a better way of looking at things is imagining a network of islands, the islands being Spanish settlements. A town would be founded. Deals or conquests would be made with the surrounding ethnic groups. And slowly, the land around these settlements would come under Spanish control. Usually, they were given out to individuals as encomiendas. Efforts would be made to keep roads safe to connect the islands, but initially, Spanish control wouldn't really extend far off these roads. Eventually, the islands of control would expand outwards and connect up, but this could take centuries, and the inhabitants of inaccessible and unproductive areas, like forests or high mountains, or they could sometimes continue to live almost unmolested for centuries, even if they were completely surrounded by Spanish territory. Oaxaca is a good example. In 1521, a couple of hundred men were sent there to give the local leaders instructions to surrender. A few did, but most didn't. So a hundred more conquistadors were sent, and they were beaten by the locals. The Spanish did manage to found a settlement, but they found it hard to expand outwards into the rest of the region. There were several unsuccessful expeditions over the next few years, so for the time being, the Spanish stuck to their island. It was a similar story in the next region south, Chiapas. The part of Chiapas along the Pacific coast, Soconusco, was quickly taken over and served as a launching pad for De Alvarado's campaign in Guatemala. For a long time, it basically served as little more than a corridor to Guatemala, with control extending in a thin strip from north to south. In 1524, another campaign was launched into the highlands, and this was met with fierce resistance. A couple of settlements were founded up there, but the indigenous peoples were not pacified, and despite these only being 50 to 60 miles from the Soconusco settlements, the two areas were not connected up. We will deal with the conquests of Oaxaca and Chiapas properly at some point in the future, but hopefully this short outline gives an idea of how patchy the conquest was. Control was stronger in the areas closer to Tenochtitlan. From the city, the Spanish did manage to extend steadily outwards. Today's state of Morelos was taken almost immediately, and it formed part of Cortes's personal estate. Today's states of Querétaro, southern Guanajuato, and the state of Mexico were colonised relatively quickly, and with not much resistance, although it took a while for the Spanish population to grow and make the land there economically productive. As these parts of the country were so close to Tenochtitlan, they had formed the heartland of the Aztec Empire, and so the Spanish inherited their tighter control of them. Even in these heartlands, however, the process was slow. Camilla Townsend illustrates this in her recently published book on the Aztec, The Fifth Sun. She retells a story that was recorded at the time in the annals of a small town, Quatinchan. 
Now the population of this area was Nahua speaking, and being just a bit south of Tlaxcala, and a couple of hundred kilometers from Tenochtitlan, it was right in the middle of the area where Spanish activity was highest. According to the annals, the Spanish had demanded that the population move from the surrounding villages into Quatinchen. Here they could be converted, taxed, and made to labour. The elderly leader of one village had spent the past few years trying to convince his population to do so. He saw no point in resisting. However, the people had been reluctant. Eventually the Spanish lost their patience, and they burned the village down. This story is interesting because it gives us one local example of how the Spanish went about setting up their new government and society after the conquest. What's really interesting, though, is the year in which this took place. Despite this local chief's early alliance with the Spanish and the village's close location to the Spanish centre of power, these events did not happen until 1559, almost 40 years after the fall of Tenochtitlan. Townsend tells the story of Quatinchan in great detail in her book, using it as an example to illustrate the decades immediately after the conquest and to map the progress of Spanish control. If you want to know more than I can include here, then I recommend getting a copy. Quatinchan is fairly unique in that we have detailed records for it, but in most other senses, it was probably fairly typical. Variations of this story probably happened all over central Mexico. So that's a bit of detail about how the Spanish tried to expand into newer territories and how they interacted with the peoples there. But what about the peoples we've already encountered? The ones who have played a role in the story? What happened to the Aztec population? Now we've looked at this a little bit in the episode where we discussed the city of Tenochtitlan immediately after its fall. We know that the surviving population continued to live in the city and made up the bulk of its inhabitants. We also know that the elites were often allowed to continue governing to a limited extent. There's another point that needs making though. Today, as in much of Latin America, the population of Mexico City is not Aztec. It's not Spanish either. What happened to that Aztec population? Well, this moment was the beginning of the centuries-long process of mestizaje. In contrast to many other colonised parts of the world, a large proportion of Latin Americans' population is of mixed ethnic heritage. Of course, indigenous peoples and Europeans gave birth to children together everywhere the Europeans went, but almost never to the extent it happened in Latin America. There are still many indigenous peoples in the region. And there are some people with only European ancestry. And of course, things are complicated by the introduction of African people in many places. However, many, many people today in Latin America are mestizo. That is, they have both indigenous and European ancestry. It would take centuries. But the answer to what happened to the bulk of the Aztec people is to a large extent that they became part of the mestizo population. Now that said, there are still some Nahuatl people in Mexico. These people have managed to preserve their language and many of their cultural traditions. There are in fact around 1.7 million of them. 
They are found across Mexico, with the highest numbers being found in the states of Puebla, Veracruz, and Hidalgo. While today the culture of Mexico City is barely recognizable as Tenochtitlan, thanks to its mestizo population and internal immigrants from all over Mexico, there are still Nahuatl pockets. In the borough of Milpa Alpa, for example, Nahuatl, not Spanish, is still the most widely spoken language. Race in Latin America is an extremely complex topic, both today and during the colonial period. It, and the concept of mestizaje, is something we will return to at some point in the future. But what about the Tlaxcalans, the allies of the Spanish? Were they rewarded for their loyalty, and the pivotal role they played in making the conquest possible? The short answer is yes, to a large extent they were. The Tlaxcalans were integrated into the Spanish government hierarchy. They were not allowed to remain independent allies. They were, however, integrated under favourable terms, and they were allowed a number of privileges that most other indigenous peoples were not. The Spanish governed at a local level through their cabildos. These were basically regional or town councils. Usually they were made up of local Spanish landowners, but in the case of Tlaxcala, they were allowed to appoint their own leaders to the cabildo, and these indigenous representatives outnumbered the one Spaniard who was put on their council. Usually, these cabildos reported to the local audiencia. These were country-sized councils. The audiencia reported to the viceroy, the king's direct representative. The Tlaxcalan cabildo was allowed to report directly to the king back in Spain. This all might sound like boring administrative detail, but it had big consequences. The governors in Mexico could not interfere in Tlaxcala, and Spaniards could not settle within the Cabildo's area. The Tlaxcalan leadership could also negotiate its tax rates directly with the king, and they sent representatives to Madrid to do this on numerous occasions. They consistently paid lower taxes than their neighbours, whose rates were set by the Viceroyalty in Mexico City. At one point they managed to avoid paying taxes altogether. I think life for the average Tlaxcalan would have been a bit better than for his neighbours. Having talked about the conquest in wider terms, let's have a look at some of the characters involved. Now I'll save the rest of Cortez's story for a future episode. At some point we will have to return to Mexico, and I can't really discuss the rest of Cortez's life without jumping too far ahead. I do, however, want to talk about his descendants. Cortez had quite a lot of children, with various women, and mapping his family tree is a little complicated. It's fun, though, simply because it's so scandalous. Two of Cortez's most prominent children were confusingly both named Martín Cortez. One was the son of La Malinche, he was Cortés's oldest, so should perhaps have inherited his titles, money and power. Being illegitimate, however, and half-indigenous at that, he was denied this. He spent his childhood in Spain, and served as a pageboy to the king. He then spent time fighting in Germany, before returning to Mexico, 
where he got caught up in events that I will cover in that episode on the rest of Cortez's story. The other Martin Cortez was born legitimately to Cortez's second wife. This means that he inherited his noble title, the Marquess of Oaxaca. This Martin also spent time in Europe and fought in the wars there. His line would become the official Cortez line of descent, and although the family name would change, as the title would end up passing through various daughters and nieces who took the name of their husbands, this line still exists, and it still holds the title of Marquess of Oaxaca. There are Cortez descendants hanging around in Mexico, inheriting status and title that was given to their famous forefather immediately after the fall of Tenochtitlan. Cortes had a number of other illegitimate children, so it's possible that he has descendants through these as well. Moctezuma too has descendants, and like those of Cortes, there is one line that still has a title and is recognised as his official legal descendants. Also like Cortes, he had a lot of children with a lot of different women, so there are probably a lot of other descendants we don't know about. Before the conquest, Moctezuma had a daughter with his first wife. After the conquest, she was given the Spanish name Isabella. This is where things get a little bit weird and incestuous. After Moctezuma's death, Isabella was married to his brother, her uncle, and the new emperor, Cuitlahuac. We already know that he didn't last long. He died soon afterwards. So she was then married to the new emperor, Cuauhtémoc who was also killed, as we know, by the Spanish a few years later. Cuauhtémoc, you might remember, was Moctezuma's cousin, so he was still related to Isabel. Also, all this happened while Isabel was between the ages of 10 and 15. So far so strange and unacceptable to our own societal rules. Next, she was married to a conquistador named Alonso de Grado, her early experience under Spanish rule was pretty similar to how it was when her family was in power. She was given no say over who she married, but she did marry important people of the highest status, so she would have lived in some comfort compared to most of the population. De Grado was given a large encomienda and an important job in the colony. He too died though, when Isabella was about 17. Now she was alone, Cortes decided to take her into his personal household, and being Cortes, she soon became pregnant. Isabella refused to recognise the child, but Cortes did. The child was a girl, and she was named Leonor Cortes Moctezuma. Leonor lived a life of luxury and status, and she had children of her own. This means, not only are there descendants of Cortes, and of Moctezuma still around today. There are people who can claim to be descended from both. It wasn't over for Isabella though. After the birth of Leonor, she was quickly married to another Spaniard, Pedro Gallego de Andrade, and she had a son with him. Pedro died soon afterwards, so Isabella was married to her fifth husband, Juan Cano, with whom she had several children. On her death, she designated her son, with De Andrade, her heir. However, Juan Cano challenged this in the courts, and the inheritance was split. 
the De Andrade line was the more prestigious, and this family became known as the Miravalle family. They moved to Spain and built a palace in Toledo, and the palace still exists today. The Cano branch also moved to Spain, and its various members married members of the Spanish nobility. Today there are thought to be thousands of people who have descent from Isabella's children with Juan Cano. While the story of Isabella is probably the more interesting one, she was not Moctezuma's designated heir. He also had a son who came to be known as Pedro de Moctezuma after the conquest. In 1627, one of his descendants through Pedro was recognised as the official and legitimate descendant of Moctezuma. The King of Spain gave him a title, and this was upgraded over the centuries, so that today the holder is the sixth Duke of Moctezuma de Tultengo. This branch of the family also moved to Spain, and became established in the nobility there. There is a Moctezuma palace in the city of Ciudad Rodrigo. A funny quirk of history is that today Cortes' descendants live in Mexico, while Moctezumas live in Spain. While we're discussing the individuals that played a part in the conquest, there are a couple more loose ends I want to tie up. We have dealt with quite a few of the story's characters already, but we have missed a couple. The first is La Malinche. Unfortunately, little is known of her life after the conquest. She most likely went to Honduras with Cortes, and probably came back to be with him in Tenochtitlan afterwards. She married a conquistador named Juan Jaramillo, but beyond that, nothing else can be said with certainty. There are conflicting accounts of when she died. It may have been soon after the trip to Honduras, or possibly in the year 1550. Another person whose story ends here is Cortez's old friend-slash-enemy, Velázquez, the governor of Cuba. He would not fare well after the conquest. Besides failing to stake any claim to Mexico, or persuade the king to punish Cortez, he was also replaced as governor of Cuba for his mistreatment of the indigenous people there. He was restored to the position a couple of years later, but he died soon afterwards. He hadn't done too badly, though. It's thought that on his death, he was the richest Spaniard in the Americas. There were, of course, many, many more conquistadors, each with their own story, and most of these are now lost. There are two, however, whose stories we do know, and who, while not having enough impact to make the main narrative, are interesting enough for me to outline quickly now. Now nobody's going to argue that 1500 Spanish America was a place of progressive equality, where everyone could be involved and had equal opportunities to dispossess people of their lands. These two people, however, are interesting, not because they were typical, but because they do provide us with an insight into what was possible in that society, even if it was very rare. The first character is Maria de Estrada, we can't be completely sure of all the details of her life, but the basics of her story are generally agreed to be true, and she is mentioned in the first-hand accounts of the conquest, a sure sign that she existed and was there. Maria was raised in southern Spain, and her older brother was a crew member on one of Columbus's trips. Once the Caribbean colonies had been established, her brother decided to settle there 
and she decided to go with him. She may have soon afterwards been shipwrecked and ended up in Cuba before it was colonised. If this part of the story is true, she was one of just a few Spaniards who survived, and she spent several years being attacked by the indigenous people. Eventually, the Spanish invasion of Cuba saw her rescued. She married a conquistador, who signed up for Cortez's expedition to Mexico, and she either went over with him, or came over later with Narvaez's men. Either way, she was there for the Noche Triste, the Battle of Otumba, and the Siege of Tenochtitlan. She wasn't just present for these events. Several sources said that she was an active participant. In the Battle of Otumba, in particular, she gained notoriety by leading a cavalry charge. She is said to have impressed enough to have been given her own group of men to lead, and to have been sent with these men to pacify some of the towns surrounding Tenochtitlan. The second character, whose story I want to tell, is Juan Garrido. Juan was African. He came from the Kingdom of Congo. And after spending some time in Lisbon and Seville, he migrated, of his own free will, to Hispaniola, and then he joined up with the Cortes expedition. He fought in the siege of Tenochtitlan, and he was given land afterwards. Later he fought in the Michoacan expedition, and is even thought to have been the first person to successfully grow wheat in the New World. As I mentioned earlier, race in Latin America is a complex and difficult subject. It's a complex subject everywhere. We will look at slavery and the situation of African people in detail in a future episode. I can't say what Garrido's day-to-day experience was like, whether he faced discrimination in his interaction with his European peers. Legally, though, it appears that as a free man, he had the same rights as everyone else. He was allowed to fight, choose where he lived, own land, and do what he wanted with it. Of course, for the majority of Africans in the New World, this wasn't the case. They were brought there as slaves. There will, though, be more African conquistadors over the next century. We'll take a better look at the African experience in early colonial Latin America at some point soon. There is one last angle of the conquest I want to consider briefly. We've looked at what the conquest meant for those involved. But what did it mean for Spain and the wider world? It was a momentous event that eclipsed what the Spanish had achieved so far in the Caribbean. As if the Habsburg king wasn't powerful enough, what with owning half of Europe alongside his Spanish kingdom, now he had a huge empire in the New World. The Caribbean and Panama had been good and all, but this changed everything. This proved that the very concept of overseas empire was both possible and worth pursuing. Until now, the jury had been out on that one. The rest of Europe was starting to look at Spain with extreme nervousness. The idea that new world colonialism was viable was an important one not just on a macro geopolitical level, but also on an individual one. Brave and or desperate people from Spain and the rest of Europe had already decided to take a punt on the New World and try their hand at settling the Caribbean or joining the Conquistador expeditions. With the conquest of Mexico, the idea was becoming more and more alluring. People who a few years before might have decided that it wasn't worth the risk 
will now start to reevaluate, and they will start arriving in larger numbers. Those already in the Caribbean will look at Cortez's achievements and become even more determined to launch expeditions of their own. Things have already moved pretty quickly. We have left the conquest of Mexico at about 1530, just under 40 years since Columbus first sighted land in the New World. A lot has been achieved in that short time. Now though, things are going to speed up even more, as everyone tries to get in on the action. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.